The Montserrat Retreat Easter in the Meantime by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 6 Works of Love and Darkness So we're made in the image and likeness of God. That's what we learned from Revelation. And to be made in the image and likeness of another... Uh, is to be born with a predisposition to imitate another. Right? We're made in the image and likeness of a God, and that's why we're imitative. We come into this world made to imitate another. The problem is, as Father Tetlow said at Mass last night, he's nowhere to be found, this God in whose image we are made. And therefore, we end up imitating one another. This This is to go back to the problem of mimesis theologically, or even ontologically. Why are why is it that we are mimetic? Well, we know in order to learn language and all these sophisticated things, but nevertheless, theologically, we are imitative because we're made in the image and likeness of another. And we're only who we are really meant to be when we are, and to the extent that we are, like the one in whose image and likeness we are made. And... The problem is the second commandment, which eliminates any image of any image and likeness of the God in whose image and likeness we are made. It's a very good, important commandment because it keeps us from being idol worshippers. But after a while, and now I'm going to be very campy, I, I have these Monty Python moments. And uh, so you can imagine after a while uh, we imitate each other and we get into all the conflict and we end up discovering, stumbling upon the sacrificial solution to our crisis. It really was a discovery. It was we, we simply discovered that it worked uh, and we clung to it all these millennia. And as as I tell the story uh, of God the Father and God the Son looking over the banister of heaven down on this human predicament, which is constantly renewing this operation over and over and over again, uh, the Father says to the Son, look, there they go. They've they've been doing this forever. They get get into a crisis. They resolve it by by some scapegoating event. That they're at peace for a while, the peace that the world understands, and then they get worked up again, and they do it over and over and over again. So he says to the son, what, in a Trinitarian we here, what are we going to do about this? There's only one thing to do, and that's for you to go down there and uh, meet them. We, all, we humans will always drag our sinfulness to this place where we purge ourselves of our sinfulness at the expense of our victim. So if our sinfulness is simply 
worked out in the way in which sin wrecks our relationships. It causes us acrimony and bitterness and resentment and anger and frustration and all the things that swirl around and eventually demand that we vent it on somebody. And we find somebody and vent it on that one and and create a certain little period of peace. So... Uh, we, so that what that means is that that place where the catharsis happens, all of the sinfulness of the community flows into that moment and is transformed in that moment into righteousness. So it's a tremendous, I mean, it's a mechanism for transforming sinfulness into righteousness, which is, you have to admit, a pretty neat trick. You see what I mean? We humans stumbled upon this mechanism for transforming sinfulness into righteousness or what we think is righteousness. So the Lord God is looking down on that and he says there's nothing left to do but for you, the son, to go down there and rendezvous with them at that point. You don't have to go all over. If you want to encounter human sin... Simply go to the place where they always bring it. It always ends up at this place. It's like a water running downhill. It always ends up at that place with the crowd pointing their unanimous fingers at one person. So all it's what you must do is simply go down there and rendezvous with them at that point. And don't come back until they hear the cock crow until they realize what they have done, until they wake up. Break the spell. You must break the spell. So Christ comes into the world providing us with a human example of the Trinitarian love life. So on one hand, he gives us a model for good mimesis, good imitation, the, the model we've longed for because we're made in the image and likeness of the Trinitarian God that he represents, that he embodies, that he is. And secondly, he robs the sacrificial mechanism of its efficacy. He shoves a stick into the spokes of it that cripples it. It doesn't cripple it instantly because the, uh, the generosity of the biblical revelation is that it awaits a response from us that has to be a free response. So the revelation exposes certain things It invites us to recognize. Uh, It woos us. Kierkegaard talks about uh, Christ came and uh, the incarnation took human form because it was only as a human that Christ could woo the human race back into the Trinitarian love life. Uh, So the, the revelation of our complicity in this sacrificial form of establishing peace is something that requires us to say yes to it. It's not something that's a mechanical uh, 
solution to the problem. So it takes time. And we have much to think about and talk about in, in that regard. History takes time and God gives it time. It takes a while for this to begin to unravel. But to see it in its pristine form, you just look at the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ is a replication of the scene of sacrifice found everywhere. You know, when the anthropologists went out in the 19th and early 20th century and they discovered all these uh, cultures and myths and rituals and this and that, they realized that uh, everywhere you look, you find these rituals and, and myths that describe a situation of chaos and a reenacted version of the chaos of a sacrificial uh, bloodletting of some kind reenacted, and then sometimes an epiphany, a divine appearance, a, a peace is established, and so on. They looked at all these things, and they said, you know, this looks a lot like Christianity. And uh, so Christianity is one of the myths of the world, one of the, fits in with all the others. And Christians, uh, to the extent they even got wind of what these anthropologists were doing, said, no, 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 it's not true. We're, what we're, we're talking about something entirely different. Now, if the anthropologists, who back in those days were very polite, uh, if they would have said, well, exactly what, what's the difference, the Christians would, have, would not have really perhaps known what to say. What Girard said when he looked at the comparing of the, the way the anthropologists compared Christianity to these myths and rituals, <clears throat> he said you have to begin by agreeing with them. It's true that Christianity is like all those other. In order to establish the uniqueness of Christianity, you have to begin by establishing its identity to all of the others that went before it. Its universality depends on its identity. It's universal because it's like everything else. It's like all the rest of it. It's unique because unlike all the rest, it comes to exactly the opposite conclusion that the, all the others come to. All the others conclude that the community was right in killing the victim and that the victim either deserved it or wished it upon himself or whatever, some logic that justifies it. Only the New Testament tells you that the victim is innocent and the mob is mad. So this revelation of the innocence of the victim, which is very pronounced, for example, in Luke's Gospel, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he said, truly this is an innocent man. The centurion. I've often said if you looked at that scene from above, you saw that crowd, you'd say, Who, who's going to get it? The centurion would be the last person you would choose. He's not, a, he's not a Jew. He has no preparation for this. He's never read 2nd Isaiah, Jeremiah, the psalmist. By Jewish standards, he's a total idiot. And Luke, Luke's very interested in universality. Luke says, the centurion, 
He's a Roman soldier. He salutes Rome. He believes that Rome only does this to people who deserve it. He does this for a living. He's a tough guy. He crucifies people for a living. That's his job, right? This is not a sentimental guy. Right? Something happened. He saw that this is an innocent man. How did he know that? Did he have a transcript of the trial? No. Something broke in on him. How could it have? How could he have known that? You see? I would suggest to you there's only, the answer to that is theological. Because these passions that give rise to the scapegoating phenomenon are so powerful that they cause us to have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. We believe any cockamamie idea that justifies the violence. When we get into this, it's like an animal in heat. We'll believe anything that gives moral and religious legitimacy to the venting of this violence. So if we had Mother Teresa there, we would think she's a witch. No problem, you see. But this centurion, who's a tough guy and does this for a living, suddenly sees that he's innocent. How could he have seen it? I would suggest there's only one answer to that. That is to say, Mother Teresa, for all of her goodness, has merely human innocence. And merely human innocence isn't enough to shatter the power of this mechanism. It required ontological innocence. That is to say, he is like us in all things but sin. He is the sinless one. And when this mechanism crashes up against a truly sinless one, ontologically sinless one, it shatters. And the centurion who has done this hundreds of times in his life suddenly realizes this is an innocent man. The veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. The whole sacrificial system is finished. The veil existed to separate the sacred from the profane and to perpetuate the sacrificial system with... In high holy days in Jerusalem, the priests would slaughter animals with blood up to their knees. And at the revelation, the system is finished. It takes forever for that unraveling to happen. In the case of Jewish sacrifice, it didn't take long because the temple was destroyed not too long afterwards. And Christians saw the link between the crucifixion and the destruction of the temple. Historians would say, that's absurd. There's absolutely no link between the, the, what happened on Golgotha in the you know, middle of the 30s and what happened to the temple uh, in the year 70. And, and in a certain historical level, that's true. But the Christians were brilliant to see the connection to see the end of sacrifice linked to the revelation of Golgotha. Because we see the innocence of the victim, we recognize what we have done. The next verse in Luke says, all the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle, you have to recognize this passage, this gathering is not just a social gathering, it's an anthropological gathering. 
This is the spectacle that gathers us together. This is the spectacle that that gathered the first human culture together. We invented human culture at a scene structurally identical to this. It's the gathering principle. So when Luke says, when all the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle saw what had happened, and Luke uses the word, the word for seeing is the our root of our word for theory, which means not just to see with your eyes, but to recognize. When they saw what had happened, and I play around and say, they threw their hats in the air and had a ticker tape parade and went home singing the national anthem. Because that's the way it's supposed to end. You see, that's how it's supposed to, the cathartic resolution is supposed to bond everybody together and have them feel they're at one again and at peace. But Luke says, when they saw what had happened, they turned around and went home beating their breast. Which doesn't mean contrition, it means confusion. Suddenly the gathering principle has backfired because of the revelation of the instance of the victim. And what used to gather us is now scattering us. The Luke and Jesus says, those who do not gather with me will be scattered. The new gathering point for the new anthropos, the new humanity, is the crucified Christ. The crucified and risen Christ. Uh, so to gather around the innocent one, crucified for our sakes and to save us from sin, is to enter the new humanity. And the clock is ticking because the old humanity, which depends on the efficacious functioning of the sacrificial system, is going to have to encounter the fact that it's going to become increasingly less efficacious with each repetition. Gerard sometimes talks about the sacrificial system after the revelation of the cross being uh, a non-renewable resource, which is every time you resort to it, 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 there's less left over to resort to again because every operation of the sacrificial system exposes it to a little more scrutiny. Its social efficacy begins to wane because each time it produces some misgivings on the part of those who are its beneficiaries. We still benefit from it in a certain sense, but it doesn't last as long as it used to. And it gives rise to certain moral discomforts on our part that may never reach the stage that it reached in the centurion but still it's unsettling you see the system is beginning to break down slowly under the revelation of the innocence of the victim so seen anthropologically you 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 see the logic of the incarnation we're made in the image and likeness of the trinitarian god uh, whom we've never caught sight of. We've heard him, we've hearkened to him, we followed him through the desert, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. You see what I mean? Etc., uh, etc. Et uh, but still, we're in this world where we're so, we're so predisposed 
to imitate. We can't be who we are without imitating. And we're made in the image and likeness of another. Where is he? (laughs) The logic of the incarnation is there. He comes to us at a moment when it's... Only God knows when it was the right moment. He came and left an unforgettable imprint on humanity. Christ is uh, the one that we can never get rid of. Every time we try to, and here, here we come to the other mystery of the whole thing. Every, every, time, every time we try to expel Christ or his representatives or his church, we reenact the drama that reveals it. You see? The act of expelling Christ or his representatives or the church is simply to repeat the, the Golgotha story with all of its revelatory power. So every time you try to get rid of it, you expose the mechanism, the more. And it reveals to you the more uh, who Christ is. So we cannot get rid of it. Now the problem is that it worked. The system worked. And when Caiaphas says it's better that one should die and the whole than the whole nation be destroyed, I've so many times said, a thousand times said, he would have gotten a Nobel Peace Prize for that piece of logic. <laughs> uh, because the because of the economy of it. One person dies, like throwing Helen into the volcano. One person dies and you have a whole lot of peace. Do the math. You see what I mean? It works. If it's not broken, don't fix it. That kind of thing. The problem is, it worked at the expense of our dignity and the truth. It required us to believe a lie, and it was beneath our dignity, and it was inhumane, and all the rest of the things we could say about it morally. But it did work. And once it begin, once it's crippled and it begins to work less and less and less and less, then all of those passions that used to be able to be periodically flushed out of the system by recourse to this sacrificial reflex begin to build up. And the system, the cultural system, and also the psychological system, Because in each one of us, these passions roil around as well. The cultural and psychological systems begin to back up with what we call now resentment. And this became a very fashionable word at the end of the 19th century among a number of intellectuals, Nietzsche prominent among them, uh, who began to look around and say, you know what, there's a lot of resentment out here. Where did all this resentment come from? (laughs) And of course, Nietzsche, who was brilliant, really brilliant, he blamed it on the Christians. And he's very close to being right. You see what I mean? Because the Christians, or at least Christ and the Christian revelation, is responsible for shoving a stick in the spokes of the mechanism that would have drained all that resentment away. Nietzsche didn't see that part of it, but he, it, uh, there's something brilliant in Nietzsche's uh, accusation. Uh, but now this, this resentment is there. What are we going to do with that resentment? 
What is resentment? It's unforgiveness. We're choking on our own unforgiveness because we can't find somebody to dump it on. See what I mean? Well, what did Christ... What, what message did He leave us? What task did He leave us? He left us the task of reconciliation. You see? Go preach this gospel to the world. Reconcile people to one another. Forgive seven times, seventy times. All of these things which we think of as being nice and morally pious and so on uh, in the gospel become immensely uh, practical, anthropologically practical uh, responses to the very crisis that Christianity has set in motion. Christianity has set the world crisis in motion. And it's potentially an apocalyptic crisis. The clock is ticking. Either we learn to live without this old mechanism or everything will fall apart because the old mechanism cannot survive the impact of the Christian revelation and it's already let loose on us. So the only question is, will we learn to live without it? And Christianity as a culture, especially I might say Catholic Christianity as a culture, uh, is is a, a culture which tries to inform us in the various ways required to live without this mechanism. That is to reach out to those who've had their dignity offended, to embrace those who are left out, uh, to be kind and forgiving and so on and so forth. These are not just pious things. These are how you have to live after that old mechanism is broken. If it's still around, you can... You, you, you don't have to be careful at all. You have an antibiotic of pharmacon on the shelf, and when things get bad, you pop one and it's gone. You see what I mean? Now we don't have that. So we have to be careful. It's kind of like the swine flu, you know. You have to do all these little things. Well, we don't want to go back to the ritual washings uh, of, the, of the Old Testament, but, but nevertheless, there are things comparable to that, which is to say, we have to attend to these. We don't. We can't just let the the ways in which we might offend or hurt or uh, you know cause resentment. We have to be attentive to that. We try not to cause resentment. We see it. We see these things, and we try to we try to bring about reconciliation to heal the world. And again, it's because the old mechanism for doing it on a cheap uh, has uh, has disappeared. Or I shouldn't say it's disappeared. It's still with us, but it has broken down. I should say one really quick thing. We're doing words here. This is a, there's not going to be a test, but there, here's a couple of another pair. Two words for the demonic in the New Testament. Diabolos. Diabolos, which uh, means the devil. Uh, but the word diabolos means to throw something across and to cause a conflict. To draw a line in the sand, so to speak. Diabolos sows division. And the other word is Satan. Satan means the accuser, one who points the finger. And the way the old system works, it's a demonic system. Uh, The Diabolos comes along and sows division, creates rancor, 
And then the demonic changes hats and points a finger, becomes the Satan, and all that rancor focuses on one figure. And you have the mechanism functioning. In the book of Revelation, we're told that the devil has landed on earth and he is in a rage because he knows his time is up. He is in a rage because he knows his time is up. There's resentment everywhere. You see, it's because of this, the old system for getting rid of it uh, has been irrevocably crippled by the revelation of the cross. We are told in the first letter of John that God is light and that, quote, in him there is no darkness. We might add that in him there is no oops. Uh, that though man is free to avoid sin, he hasn't the power to surprise his creator by failing to do so. Von Balthasar quotes with approval the 19th century German biblical translators, Valentin Locke and Wilhelm Reichel, quote, God did not plan the foundation of the world and bring it to pass without, in foreseeing sin, forming his decree for the redemption of the world, and this through the future incarnation of his only begotten Son. Redemption, therefore, is not something in the mind of God posterior to the creation of the world. In other words, the redemptive plan is insinuated into the world, for God knew that he was taking a great risk in giving us freedom. Why would God take such a risk? Think of the, the, the peril that we're in with it. Because it's all about love. It's all about love. And in order for it to be love, it has to be freely given. There must be freedom in order for there to be real love. It's a huge divine gamble. And of course, God knew uh, what we human beings would do with it, which is exactly what we did with it. Quote, from a theological point of view, which is compatible, I hope, with my mimetic anthropology, writes René Girard, I would say that the word or Christ is at work in this whole long process toward humanity and representation, end quote, which is a similar kind of observation uh, that the, the Logos has been there from the beginning as we know from John's Gospel, the prologue. In the beginning was the Logos, and later it, the Logos became flesh. In other words, it culminates, it begins, it, it leads to, really, uh, the birth of uh, humanity and the development of human history. To the extent that culture is humanity's spiritual life support system, the sine qua non of hominization itself, you can't, we can't be humans sustainably without culture, then Girard's proposals underscore the Christological significance 
of passages such as the prologue of John's Gospel where we are told that, quote, all things came to be through him. All things came to be through him. An allusion to the same Christological mystery is found in the magnificent hymn in Colossians. Quote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominations or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. End quote, St. Paul. To say that in and through Christ all things were created, including thrones, dominions, principalities, and authorities, is to say that Christ is the source of the very cultural scaffolding about which Paul elsewhere expresses such ambivalence. In conflating these primary allusions to Christian universality, one would have to say that the crucified Christ, as Paul insists, would eventually despoil the very cultural and religious structures he originally brought into being, making a public spectacle of them by nailing them to the cross. That's a reference to Colossians chapter 2, 14 and 15. The implication is that the conventional cultural structures, the architecture of the kingdoms of this world, came into being in and through Christ, who in the fullness of time and in fulfillment of the scriptures would come to empty them of their sacred aura and metaphysical pretensions. Two questions are unavoidable one anthropological and one theological. The first is, especially given the cogency of Girard's account of the origin of thrones, dominions, principalities, and authorities, these are the structures of cultural life, how exactly were all these things created through Christ? And the second question is a theodicy question. How could God have countenanced such a makeshift concession to human sinfulness and tolerated its violence and cruelty. Divine mercy shown to those about whom Christ would say, quote, they know not what they do, is one thing. But tolerance for the cruelties visited upon their victims is another. One thinks in this regard of that most remarkable and exegetically enigmatic verse in the book of Revelation, referring to, quote, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. Uh, its textual ambiguity notwithstanding, there is no way of translating this verse that completely eliminates the suggestion that what is revealed on Golgotha has been ongoing since the beginning that all the persecuted victims in history share in Christ's passion, their names recorded as co-sufferers with Christ on the cross. This bewildering suggestion is made the more intriguing by the anthropological evidence that fallen human culture came into existence at precisely the moment 
when a suddenly hushed mob mistook its hapless victim for a god. A massive recoiling from a dark truth, no doubt, but nevertheless one which invites reflection from the point of view of and all things came to be through him Christology. In an Easter homily, the second century Bishop Melito of Sardis spoke of Christ in these terms. It is he who endured every kind of suffering in all those who foreshadowed him. In Abel, he was slain. In Isaac, bound. In Jacob, exiled. In Joseph, sold. In Moses, exposed to die. He was sacrificed in the Passover lamb. Persecuted in David, dishonored in the prophets. The lamb slain since the foundation of the world. And then we come finally to Matthew, where Jesus says, What you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And the obvious question is, beginning when? When he said it, from this point on, or forever. What you have done unto the least of these, without knowing it, you were doing to me. The lamb slain since the foundation of the world. The one who knew, foreknew, what we would do with our freedom, and who entered in to the pain and suffering that would come from our uh, refusal of God's mercy and grace and our attempt to do it on our own, use our freedom in it for our own gratification and autonomous pleasure and so on and so forth. The pain and suffering that would come from that. You know, uh, suffering is simply sin matured and uh, Sin, you could say, is the embryonic form of suffering. And suffering is just what it grows into. And so God foresaw all of that, knew what we would do with our freedom, and entered into it, knew that there would be huge suffering that would come from it, from our mortality, the fact that we would be mortal, and the fact that we would try to avoid or evade our mortality by turning our animosity to others, buying our way out of death by focusing our, applying death to someone else, evading death, using death as a, as a trick for evading death. All of the things that we do, we humans do and have done, God saw that coming. And in his infinite mercy and in his, uh, Willingness to take it on, joined. This is theodicy question. Theodicy is, how, how could God have tolerated this sort of thing? Why doesn't he come down here and clean house? You know, shut the door and take names. <laughs> well, he chose to enter into that suffering, to be co-crucified with every victim in the history of the world, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. So what we see on Golgotha is a 
is a radically new event because it's a revelation. Even the centurion got it. You see what I mean? It's a revelation. But it's a revelation of what's always been ongoing. It's a revelation of what holds the world together. Had all of that suffering happened without the co-crucifixion of the second person of the Trinity, the whole human enterprise would have imploded. Because you have to remember the ancients, now this is a complication that we haven't really spelled out and it's too, it's too dense to do that here. Uh, but just take my word for the fact that uh, in the ancient world, the gods were the divinized victims. And very quickly, why, how this happens is that when the, when the crowd closes in on the, on the victim they've chosen, randomly chosen, they chose this victim because he has a limp like Oedipus or he's blind or he's a stranger or he, any, any excuse, you see. They close in on it. They really think, they really believe they're caught up in this madness. They really believe that this is a metaphysical being. That this is a being that's all powerful. That, that has brought all the evil on the community. So they approach this victim as a transcendent being. And they kill him. And suddenly there's peace. Proving that they were right about the transcendent nature of this being. And that somehow the gods, this one or the gods, have looked kindly on what we just did. And so they build a shrine right there to this God. And they reenact this ritual. Now there are a thousand variations of that. Uh, but you get the divinization of the victim, which is a very odd, strange thing. And uh, anthropologists who know about it are, um, are used to it in a sense. What happened? Uh, anthropologists, when they first saw this, they said, well, Christianity is just another myth like all the rest of them. But really, we were, we're, t- we're too familiar with it. It's an odd thing. There's no... Where, where's the logic that says they would... After, after you look at it, you can understand how it happened. But what a strange thing that they divinized their victim. Did they see something in that victim that was valid? In other words, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world, who, as uh, uh, Melito says, suffered with all those who were his predecessors in suffering, Co was co-crucified, co-lynched with all of these victims. And perhaps it was his presence as a co-crucified that led to the divinization of the victim. You could say that our most ancient ancestors, for all of their delusion, had dimly recognized the co-crucified one in whatever hapless victim they have selected. That Christ was there, his presence, his unseen presence, is what gave rise to religion, to archaic, brutal, savage religion, but religion nevertheless that maintained a modicum of order and peace 
And so he is the source of the powers and principalities. The powers and principalities are these metaphysical arrangements that allow us a little space of peace and, and, and uh, communal camaraderie. These come into being, we now know, from the sacrificial operations that Girard has analyzed so powerfully. But what we can see now, I think, thanks to some of these very strange passages in the New Testament that say Christ was there from the beginning, he is the source of all these things, even though all these things he's the source of are later brought under critique by the very revelation of the cross. Because at the revelation of the cross, we see who has been there all the while. We see the, the supporting structure for the whole human enterprise has been the suffering Christ. What you do unto the, the least of these, you have done unto me. And that's what's held it together. Well, these are imponderables, no doubt. But this is the kind of thing that we, uh, I think, need to do in our time when our task is to account for Christianity in a bold way, to take advantage of this uh, conversation between theology and anthropology, and to revisit some of these passages which have seemed fascinating in a way, but we haven't really known what to do with them. The lamb slain since the foundation, or all things came to be through him. All things, cosmically, yes, but culturally as well. That had he not been co-crucified with these hapless victims, the powers and principalities and authorities and all the structures that keep culture together simply would not have been sustainable. There would, be, there would have been no divinization. So when we look back and we think, oh, these poor benighted people thought this, this hapless victim was a god. How ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was a cover-up for their murder. But there's a hint of some real truth there. And I think it's that hint that may have given rise to archaic religion. And as mad and savage as that religion was, in the familiar eschatological discourse in the 25th chapter of Matthew, the Son of Man comes in glory to judge the world and to the surprise of all announces, quote, what you do unto the least of these you do unto me. The question is beginning when. When exactly does Christ become the secret co-recipient of the mistreatment meted out to the least of his brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ, writes Nicholas Healy, is God's theodicy. That is to say, the, the accounting for God's justice. In him, quote, God himself fully enters human history and in a certain way unites himself with every human being and thus with all human suffering, end quote. Christ's identity with sufferers cannot be limited, therefore, to those suffering persecution. For the violence that eventually falls on the community's scapegoat is simply the suffering born of sin and death turned outward onto others. So 
it's not just a question of suffering with all the ones who have been persecuted, because the persecution is simply the result of transferred suffering. We take our own sin and suffering and we vent it on somebody else and feel relieved and at peace with one another. So it's, it's taking on, it's sharing in the suffering of all of our lives. Simone Bay says, the false God turns suffering into violence and the true God turns violence into suffering. So to the extent that we can and we will, of course we all suffer. When suffering comes our way, to the extent that we can uh, recognize the co-sufferer who suffers with us, we can participate in the salvation of the world. We have been given in our mortality and in our sinfulness, there's a silver lining. Because of our sinfulness and mortality, we suffer. The silver lining is that when we do, if we embrace Christ and suffer with him, we participate in the salvation of the world. We make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. So insignificant as we are, he has given us a role in the drama of salvation, which none of us deserves, but is a great privilege if we take advantage of it. This concludes the Montserrat Retreat, Easter in the Meantime. For more information about Gil Bailey and the Cornerstone Forum, please visit the Forum's website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.